Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Professor David Bedder. David Bedder is Professor of Cognitive, Linguistic and Psychological Sciences at Brown University. He and his lab have made pioneering contributions to the neuroscience of cognitive control and executive function. Today we are going to discuss his new book on task, how our brain gets things done. David, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. David, in our brain, we have a function that we call cognitive control, a unique ability that humans have to plan, make decisions and achieve our goals. Before we look at the working of cognitive control, I want to start with this question. Do we understand that why this ability is unique to humans? That's a great question. I should start by saying that that cognitive control is not necessarily unique to humans. There, there are other species that can um, do versions of control. However, at the scale that humans do it, no other species rivals us. I mean, the, the example that I'm, I think is very salient right now actually is the current uh, pandemic So that and our response to it. So all of us, or many people, I should say, around the world, change their behavior but nearly within days, right back in uh, in last year, in in all kinds of ways, right? We were you know shopping differently. We were doing uh, you know socializing differently. We're even teaching differently, right? As as academics, and the fact that we were do- we did that on the basis of frankly very abstract ideas that we had. We were told things that you know either we were obliged to follow or that we believed in that um, we you know we would uh, you know need to do to try to stem the pandemic, and then we. We changed our behaviors. We did things we'd never done before. I had never used Zoom to teach before, right? And I was teaching with Zoom. I had never had to worry about waiting six feet behind people in front of me in line to go and grocery shop. But um, I was able to do it. It didn't take, it didn't take lots of training. I, you didn't have to sit there and reward me every time I did the right thing. It didn't take, obviously, thousands or millions of years of evolution to acquire those traits, right? We were able to do it on the basis of this abstract principle. This is what we want to do, and we were able to do it. And so, again, other species can do something like that. But at that scale, and the, and the, and the way in which we, um, we do it across uh, everything we do is something that is, is very unique to, to humans, I'd say. And do we know that why only in human brain uh, the scale of this activity is uh, very large? Um, it's that's a hard question to answer. I mean, in the sense of any anytime you're talking about why was is a function uh, expressed in a particular species, right? The answer to that has to involve where that species came from, right? Each no particular function leaps up all of, all at once, right? In 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 some in some ancestor, rather that ancestor's uh, biology and its and their expression and their phenotype, right, is going to be. Uh, constrained by the biology and the phenotype of that ancestor's ancestors, so you have to look more at a progression of what what of of how uh, a function evolved. So why this scale in humans is a is I think uh, a very difficult question to answer. Right, it's one that is going to be necessarily probably not enough data given the uh, how much you'd like to you'd like to theorize about it. But what I my I think one one possible answer and something that i talk about a lot in the book is that with humans we have uh, it, we're well aware that we have a, a the ability for, for language right we can we can deal in social transmission right of ideas very, very readily but we were able to pair um, two functions that kind of build off of each other so one function is our, our ability for uh um, future thought, sometimes called episodic future thoughts, so our ability to consider and conceive of uh, hypothetical futures, counterfactual futures, things like, you know, things that are or possible states that we could be in. It could be both something very immediate, like I want to have a cup of coffee, but it can also be very um, long range. We can conceive of those things, but we, but we also compare that with an action system that is general and compositional. That means we actually rep the way we represent tasks can be broken down into subparts that can be reassembled into new tasks. So it has a generativity. And those two things actually put pressure on one another. Right? Planning itself comes with costs. 
And one of the things that comes up a lot in the book is that there are trade-offs. So if I want to be, if I have a, you know, if you think, I think one simple way to think about it is if I plan very deeply, imagine I'm playing a game of chess or I'm doing something where I think, I think it's, it's fine if you want to think eight moves in advance, but if I can't hold those eight moves in my head, and execute them under the right conditions as I'm going along, then what? Then I have to stop and replan, and that's going to be that's going to put a a, a a pressure on my ability to to be able to carry out my plans, right? And so the two things sort of feed off one another as as uh, as we as we go. And so I think um, the, there's a pressure that uh, to there there are there are costs that come with our general cognition, and so a lot of the way we think about a lot of the aspects of cognitive control function. Right from things that you typically associated with it, like inhibition or planning or working memory, things like that. Many of these are really ways that we try to minimize the costs that come with that general cognitive architecture. These days, it is widely accepted that the prefrontal cortex is crucial for our highest mental functions, including cognitive control. But uh, it took us a while uh, to understand this. Uh, you discuss research on frontal lobe and you use this term puzzle of frontal lobe and then in the book uh, you go through fascinating history of related research that was mainly conducted uh, in the 20th century. Talk us through the research on the puzzle of frontal lobe uh, that informs us uh, that the prefrontal cortex is crucial for our highest mental functions. Yeah, so it's it's maybe surprising today because I think I think it is you are right. It's reached the the com, kind of conventional wisdom about the brain that the prefrontal cortex is the seat of higher mental function. In fact, we attribute it you know all kinds of things like intelligence and personality and so forth. But um, it was very confusing to scientists. Why it was a puzzle early on is because. Um, Many scientists in the early part of the 20th century uh, started doing, neuroscientists would uh, either in animal models with lesion parts of the prefrontal cortex or in patients who had either some sort of uh, brain injury, either due to disease or accident, um, to that part of the brain, they would try to study their behavior. And it was, what was surprising to them is they did not see the kind of dramatic deficits that you would expect for a part of the brain that's supposed to be the seat of all higher mental function. In fact, there was a sort of a, by the middle part of the 20th century, there was a notion that it was actually the functionless cortex. It was, maybe it was, it was somehow auxiliary or supportive, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same thing you'd see in other kind of patient groups, right? If you have damage to some parts of the brain, like for example, the hippocampus, or the medial temporal lobes, you'll develop deep amnesias. You will not be able to form new memories or certain parts of the brain, you'll end up with aphasias and be unable to speak or have other language disorders. The, those are very dramatic, very, and you can immediately assess them in the clinic. But these patients would come in after, in some cases, some of these reports, after a large, say, a, say a patient had a tumor. I gave one example in the book of uh, actually the sister of, of Wilder Penfield, who was a very famous neurosurgeon at the Montreal Neurological Institute. She had had, unfortunately, a tumor and had a, a large resection of the right prefrontal cortex, almost the, the, entire, uh, the entire anterior frontal lobe was removed. And yet, after her recovery from the surgery, she was seemed to be in her in her interactions with her doctors, able to carry out conversations. She, she seemed charming. She was able to do the kinds of simple cognitive tests that were being administered in the clinic, did fine. She would score fine on perception and language, um, even, even some tests of intelligence at very high levels, right? And, um, but yet, in her everyday life, outside of what was happening in the clinic. And, and again, this is what the doctors were seeing. This is why they thought of it as being, uh, you know, what could this, what is this, what, what, why is this such an important part of the brain if it doesn't seem to be affecting these patients? But yet in her, her life outside the clinic was a different story. She was uh, unable to carry out or organize a set of, of actions in a purposeful way. Penfield gives the example of her trying to, say, have a dinner party for a group of, uh, I think, six or seven people to which he was invited. Um, and you know, she was sort of in the kitchen and there were things that had gotten started. Maybe there was a pot bubbling and so forth. But it was not the concerted act of finish. It was hopeless. She was very frustrated because it was, she was never going to finish that, that dinner. So for her, and this was, I think, the thing that was missed by um, many of the, of the scientists who were studying this part of the brain early on is that 
it was not the a specific loss of a, of, of a simple function, but rather it was the ability to put all the pieces together in an organized way and in the complexity of our world. Our world is very complex. We have lots of, of, of information impinging on our senses and, we, and it's very dynamic. So if I want to do something in time, I've got to deal with a great deal of complexity. Um, that, was the, that was the loss. The, the inability to do that, to, to put together that kind of action. I mean, maybe along the lines of the title of this, this podcast, right? There was an inability to bridge the gap between knowledge on, on, the, on the one hand, right? What she wanted to do, make dinner, what she knows about how to do that, and the ability to actually um, carry out that as a, as, a, as a concerted act that gets realized in the world. And so that was hard for scientists to appreciate. And I think it's actually an interesting case of, of where scientists at that time lacked the concept of a control process at that level. And it wasn't actually until people started drawing on engineering theory, ideas of, of control theory from engineering, um, people like cybernetics, you know, the Wiener in the uh, late in the 40s and 50s, and then also um, the advent of the personal computer, which was the first agent we observed other than ourselves that seemed like it, had, it was an executive agent to control itself, itself and, to and that agent to do anything had to have uh, control flow in its processing. And so we came to appreciate that, that must be, there, there might be something to that too for complex human action. Cognitive control is about transforming knowledge uh, into actions. So before actions can happen, the knowledge must exist, which means our ability to store information in the brain and our ability to learn are also crucial sub-functions of cognitive control. So to understand cognitive control, we must understand how we acquire knowledge and how we store knowledge. That's true. And, and to, to maybe add to what you said, I, you know, we, we can have when I, the knowledge that we're, that when I say kind of bridge knowledge and action, what I mean very often is purposeful knowledge, right? We, we know things about the world. Like when you're in a conversation with somebody, you have a, you have a knowledge, you have some understanding of the situation you're in, what you want to, what you want to convey, where you want to go with that conversation. And that's going to guide your action in some way. Um, there are lots of actions that we take. And again, action itself is a kind of knowledge, right? That we've stored, already, and really doesn't require cognitive control. It's being controlled. It can be controlled by the environment, like a skill that you've learned over a long a number of, a long time. If you're a very skilled athlete or you're a very skilled musician, so forth, you may have trained yourself certain types of actions sufficiently that you kind of, you know, colloquially, you don't have to think about them, right? There's no need. In fact, if you do think about them, you can mess them up. I don't know if you've ever like really, if you learn, a, if, for instance, a piece of music really well, or you have something you've done well, you, you, you have to start not thinking about it. Because if you do that, you'll you'll mess yourself up. The so these are so um, those you can think of as controlled, but they're sort of controlled by an expected set of inputs. They're controlled automatically or by the world, and um, and so you've trained yourself to build those actions so that they're controlled by the most likely inputs they're going to receive. And indeed, patients with frontal uh, lobe damage or patients with problems with cognitive control can carry out those kinds of often very complex automatic actions. What they can't do is is decide when to do them if the situation, say, is different, or if they have to rebuild them, right? Those little components, those pre-compiled bits of action that we need to may maybe build into a new task, do something new, and that requires then control flow between them. It requires deciding, I'm going to pick this, I'm going to monitor it and make sure it worked, and then I'm going to add this other, other bit to it. That's what they can't do. And so that's the, the, kinds of, the kind of um, knowledge action link that we're, we're talking about. D to your point, though, Right. Over time, we come to learn about new kinds of actions. Right. We we can you can where this whole thing. This is a very dynamic system. Right. We and we learn different kinds of things. On the one hand, we can learn new comp. You can compile new automatic actions. Of course, if we do something a lot. But the other thing we can learn about is how when we enter new situations, what's we can generalize or use our prior knowledge to uh, act in this new situation, right? Through transfer, through analogy and so forth. And that's important for this generativity notion for me to take something I've never done before and, and know that even though I want to now, I'm gonna, I want to now remember to wear a mask every day I, when I leave the house, even though I've never worn masks in my life, right? Up until this moment, it's not been a part of my fashion. I'm, now I've, I'm incorporating it into my daily habit I have to draw on something that are, is already there, right? If I'm going to be able to do it quickly 
without having to build it up slowly over time. So I, I've certainly done things like this. And I can assemble um, that new action on the fly based on my fantasy I have, right? This abstract idea of myself wearing a mask when I leave the house, right? How, how much uh, do we understand that uh, how the process of learning and acquiring knowledge uh, happens uh, in our brain? Well, learning is, is one of the most fundamental problem areas of research in both in neuroscience, in psychology, and in cognitive science, as, as, you, as you can imagine. Uh, and there's no one answer. So actually, there are different kinds of learning. There's learning that we do through, uh, we learn explicitly, right? So there's learning that you have, you know, if I want to, I want to uh, explicitly or consciously I'm aware of something that I want to, I want to commit and remember later, I can try to learn that as one notion of learning. There's learning through reinforcement, right? There's, and with feedback. There's also learning that happens um, based on regularities, things that co-occur without feedback per se, that I'm able to pick up on. I think there's types of statistical learning um, where I basically pick up on regularities in my world. Um, and some of that learning happens within single dimensions of my world. And sometimes it comes across different dimensions. And it turns out the brain has different, there are different constraints on those different types of learning. Um, so it's there. There's a wide range of, of different kinds of learning um, that that happen in the brain. The, with regard to cognitive control specifically, um, it's a it's a it's an interesting problem for learning for a number of reasons. One is that uh, one of the another reason why scientists actually didn't really consider cognitive control for a number of years was because it had long seemed like uh, a theoretical shortcut. Right. In other words, here's a process that just seems to know. Like, if, uh, why did I, why did I know that when I entered? Uh, let's say I, let's say someday you come to Brown, you visit Brown, you say I'm going to go visit, uh, you know, David. We met over this podcast. I'm going to go see him, and, I, and you come to my office, and I'm not in my office. You walk in my office. I'm assuming that you won't sit in the chair that's behind the desk, right? Even though I have never told you. I, ne I mean, I guess I am now, but you never told you there's this rule that you don't sit in somebody else's chair. You kind of know this, right? You walk in the room, and that you take that context. And you say, I can use, and you'll use that to, to pick what, what chair you're going to sit in. Okay, so how did you do that? Well, it, with the, the problem with cognitive control is a theoretical construct. Is if I just say, well, you used cognitive control, I haven't explained a thing. Right? I've, given, I've explained it in terms of, of a, in essence, a little person. This is what they call the, like, a homunculus who's in your head who just happened to know this rule and allowed you to sit the right way. It's the homunculus problem. And so it's one of the major theoretical challenges in cognitive control uh, is how, right? How did that, that rule get there? And how did we learn? How are we able to do it? And so learning is a key piece of that, of the answer to that, to that problem. Is there must be a way that the system can self-organize through experience Right? Or and some in some aspects of of our um, existing biology, but certainly through experience, we're able to acquire these uh, the the mechanisms by which we we can implement those rules. And so um, and in, and so learning and cognitive control and the way learning applies to it is specifically how do we learn about the ways to connect ideas we have, goals we have context we have to the action that we're taking. How, and, there's, and there's all kinds of, of special learning problems there, right? Relate, ra ranging from, say, just I'll give you one example, is credit assignment. It's very complicated, right? So how do I know, right? So, you know, you come, you don't sit in my chair, right? We're, I'm, I'm pleased when I come in my office that I, you know, I guess we go the other way. And if I found you sitting in my chair, maybe you get some negative feedback. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, how do you then give credit when you achieve your goal, whatever it is, and you've done something, right, to the to the specific processes that ha that preceded it, and no, it was this thing that I did, and not this other, not this other kind of process. And so, credit assignment is a big problem. Another big problem is scaling. So we already talked about the complexity issue. How, there are so many dimensions to the input to the human brain. How does how do we decide it was this aspect of my context? It was the important thing was being in my office, not that it was a Tuesday, not that it was about to snow, not that I was wearing, you know, my particular, you know, favorite jacket, whatever. It was that I was in somebody's office. This office was the reason that um, was important, the important piece of this, uh, uh, of this chair selection problem. And so I think that's the, those are the, the challenges that scientists worry about when we try to understand learning with regard to cognitive control. Another uh, important piece of the puzzle is 
memory. Uh, you discuss uh, this in your book in detail, uh, particularly in the context of information retrieval. Now, information retrieval is an interesting function in our brain. Talk us through that uh, how our brain tries to balance cost and reward uh, while executing information retrieval process. Of course, yeah. This is, I think, one of the... Um it's it's a, a different way to think about about memory perhaps than we, we usually do right often this we think about memory as being a system for storing information for us right and when we think about it that way we we often think wow do we have a poor memory relative to say our devices that we have around us like our you know your your smartphone or or your computer right that seem to store things without much degradation at least rel certainly relative to the human brain uh, whereas we're forgetting things all the all the time i think i give the example in my book of saying you know the equivalent seems like with a human brain is if i if imagine how we think about our smartphone is if we we tried to get a call up a, someone's say phone number on our phone and instead it gave us a song that we, we weren't thinking about. That's sort of like what it's what it feels like sometimes to be trying to remember things in the human brain. We want to remember this one thing. We can't get there, but we keep getting this other thing. And so looked at that way, the human memory does look like it's 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 a it's not the it's a pretty inferior system. But if you recognize it from this informa information retrieval perspective, that we want to remember things that have utility for what we're doing. The analogy then isn't a hard drive on a computer or the storage on your on your smartphone. The analogy is a search engine. And now something like the search engine you'd have on Google or, or and so forth. And that's trying to solve a problem where it's it's it needs to rank your memories in such a way that information comes to mind, not just any information, but information that's useful for what you're doing. And that's a really hard problem, that information. And this isn't just applied to the human brain. It's something that's that is found in any system in which a, a database has to be queried. Right, so it's something that shows up in library science and computer science and databases and so forth. Um, and so there's a so on the one hand, there's then util. It's it recognizes that there's utility as you as you alluded to. So some information, um, if, given what I'm doing right now, there's some information that's useful and some some that's not. As, as an example, right, the things that I want might want to remember about say a piano. Right, it would be very different uh, in terms of the features of a piano, right? Of, uh, depending on whether my task was to say play one versus say move one into my house, right? That there are you know there are properties of pianos that are going to be relevant to those two tasks, and, I, and and sometimes that size is very and shape is very useful in one context, in the other context, you know aspects of is it a grand piano or upright or what have you might be relevant to your playing of the piano, and so the um, so on the one hand you have that value. The other side of it is that anytime you engage in retrieval, there is there's going to be a cost. There's a cost in time. There's a cost um, that we experience as mental effort, right? Which is something I also talk about in the book and other in other contexts, right? But if, when we engage, particularly in intensive um, control-dependent tasks, we actually experience an aversion, aversive experience of mental effort that we treat as a cost. And there's a chance also for error, right? That you might retrieve the wrong thing. And so these as a result. So the key thing for for a a good, well controlled memory system then is you can maximize value. So I can retrieve things that are valuable for me um, above and beyond the costs of doing that retrieval. Right? It doesn't help me to search my entire memory for a week to remember one one minor fact. Right? That I that I that isn't that useful. Right? Um, what I want is to be able to on the as I'm moving have information that's useful come to mind readily and not cause me great costs. David, uh, a number of scientists think that when we are trying to understand various functions uh, in our brain and when we are trying to describe the mechanisms of various processes in our brain, we should not use the example of computational systems. Uh, we should not use the example of computers. Uh, in their view, computers are very different as compared to how the brain works. Uh, but in your book, when you are talking about um, uh, information retrieval, when you are talking about memory, you use the example of search engine. You do mention Google. Uh, and you have briefly mentioned this while answering the previous question. Uh, question. Uh, so what is your view on uh, this opinion that we should 
try to avoid using computers uh, as examples and computational processes as examples when we are trying to understand what happens in our brain? It's a terrific question. It's a very deep question. I think the answer is yes and no. So um, it has to do with the level of analysis in which you want to analyze the problem. So for some, there are some problems that are fundamental computational problems that the brain is trying to solve, um, that other kinds of systems would try to solve as well. And anything that's trying to, and so one example is information retrieval. There are other examples, but um, they actually even ones that come up in the book. Those kinds of trade-offs are going to be are 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 fundamental to anything that has that cognitive or functional level uh, function. And so it will constrain something like a brain the same way it would constrain something like a computer that was trying to achieve that function. There's another level of analysis in cognitive neuroscience, which is at the level of the implementation of that function. How does the brain going to carry out that function? And there, the computer analogy isn't as strong. So if I'm interested in understanding how does retrieval, how is it retrieval implemented by a brain, it's um, thinking of it the same as a, a computer may not be, um, may not be apt not be useful. There also are functional level analogies which aren't good. So for instance, it's not clear at all that the kind of universal computation that, that's um, possible in a computer is, is necessarily um, possible in a brain, for example. Um, and so there, there are, but I think it's, to answer your question, you have to be, you have to think about what level of analysis you're interested in considering the problem. You know, another example I give in, in the book, which is a really fundamental one for control, is the flexibility stability trade-off. So in general, most systems, it's not just brains, most systems you design can, um, to the degree to which they favor stability, right? So in other words, they're able to hold patterns stably over time or hold information stably over time will um, make them less flexible and vice versa. And that's, you know, that's a, and that's a problem that a brain will face and it's a problem that a control system um, faces and, and other systems would face as well. And so it's something that um, nonetheless, the brain has a solution to, which may not be the same when it implements that, which may not be the same solution as other, other systems. And so, that, so, you, so that's why you have to take care about what level uh, of analysis you're working at. And I should say, this is a problem that is, is really at the heart of, uh, of cognitive neuroscience. We have, we have lots of, like, when I, we teach, I teach the core course for our graduate program, we spend, you know, the very first topic we deal with is issues and explanation. And one reason is because Dealing, thinking about levels of analysis when you're dealing with the brain and when you're dealing with the mind is a really, really important uh, explanatory and theoretical uh, consideration for scientists who work in this domain. The title of the first chapter in the book is What Lies in the Gap Between Knowledge and Action? I think this is a fascinating line. Uh, well, a lot can happen uh, when we know we have to do something. Uh, and uh, how we actually do this. For instance, uh, we may decide to do something impulsively, very quickly, uh, or we may decide to delay some actions. So how does cognitive control uh, manage uh, our choices? If the deadline to submit an assignment uh, or to complete a project uh, uh, is uh, in 10 days, I may decide to start working on that assignment now, or I may decide to delay uh, start working on that assignment. I may decide to uh, work on the assignment the very last day uh, before the submission. So how does cognitive control assist us uh, in making these choices? Yeah, this is, and this, your example is terrific because I think it, it really points to, again, why I think often we don't see control and the fragility, how fragile it is and how, how much we need it until we're out in the real world. This is why these patients weren't, you couldn't really detect when you, when you're in the well-controlled setting of the clinic or the laboratory, where you're given a simple task and everything else is out and you just, it's very, it, the path is straightforward. Um, th it doesn't put as much pressure on this for the kinds of decisions you're describing. But when you're in the, in the real world, we have lots of goals, lots of things that are happening at different time scales. There's lots of information that's coming and there's the dynamics that we have to manage. And, that's, and so that's where, where control comes in. And, I, and so as one simple example that I give in, in the book, that I think is useful for talking about mechanism a little bit 
is I give this example of being in your car and you're, you get a notification from your phone that you either have an incoming text or call. Okay. And so there's a lot in, in, a, in most, for, for many people these, these days, the buzz of the phone is a very compelling stimulus. It's something that we've been trained for thousands of times checking our phone that it almost, it's, you mentioned this sort of fast impulse. There's an impulse to check it. You want to check your phone. And a lot of the time, it's that's okay. You're relaxing at home on the weekend. Nothing else happens. Nothing else, the phone buzzes. Sure, you check and you text with your friend, what have you. But if you're in the car or you're, say, you know, in the middle of your lecture or you're, you're, uh, you're in a, in, you know, having a conversation with somebody, there are contexts where you should resist that, that impulse, right, where you want to do something else. Either you might want to mute the phone or redirect your attention to the road if you're driving and things like that. So, that, so as, a, as almost a, a sort of small ex- example right, of, a control, of an act of control, you need to have, in that moment, you need to be able to take the, uh, the context you're in, and then whatever it is, let's say it's driving, and you need to use that in order to redirect your, your action from this very strong, uh, and we already mentioned sort of automatic or stimulus-controlled action, right? So I don't even need to think about the fact that I want to check my phone. In fact, you may, some people may even find themselves checking their phone before they realize that they were doing it, right? There's a, there's a, it's, it's, it's been learned so well, it's at that point stimulus-controlled. You need to be able to take this now internal information and take the same input. This is what makes it really interesting. It's the same input of a buzzing phone and do something different. And so that's the, and so that requires a number of different mechanisms in a lot of ways the brain can do it. But one, uh, one common model that scientists have is that we use, we, by representing the context, right, something like the, the driving, right, in our working memory, which is a short, in, you know, short-term inter, uh, intermediate kind of memory that is active and that we can manipulate and use for, for processing, that by holding that context or rule we have, I don't check my phone in the car in working memory, I then provide an additional input to the system. You can think of it as what was, it's called state support, right? So I provide some, some, a different state that allows that when integrated with that input of the buzzing phone allows you know will will direct to a different action. And so if we so that simple model leaves a lot to be understood. Right? For example, how did I know to hold that context in mind? Right? How did I know that was the moment for that context to provide state support? Right? What uh, what was the um, what was the 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 why was it that I had of all the things I could have done? Why did I pick the particular thing I did, and so forth? And so, but it that's but and that's where these little decisions you mentioned come in, and that's also where learning comes in. So it must be the case that in some way I have a system for learning con- what context to input to working memory, so I, I can detect of all the things that are happening, being my car, seeing a cute dog on the side of the road, I don't know, hearing something, that of all the things, some things are useless, I don't need to worry about that dog on the side of the road, I don't, I need, but I do need to put hold on to the fact that I'm driving as a context. And I also need to be able to deploy that information at the right moment. It's not helpful to remember that I'm driving just any time. I need, to, I need to, it to deploy at the time when the, when the buzzing phone comes in. And so that dynamics, the, the metaphor is often um, of a gate, Right, of a, that when that a gate on memory. So in other words, that, when that gate is opened, I can put information in memory that's relevant. And when that gate is closed, it protects it against distraction and it keeps it from interfering with, with what I'm doing. And so what you're going to learn then is not just that you're learning a rule about driving. You're learning a gating policy. You're learning about what are the con- the conditions under which I would put information into memory or allow memory inf- information to be gated out. David, your book on task, How Our Brain Gets Things Done, is not strictly a self-help book. Uh, But if you understand various mechanisms of brain functions, uh, you can uh, use this information, uh, you can use this knowledge and understanding uh, to improve uh, your productivity. And the first relevant question that I have in my mind is, can the human brain support multitasking while keeping efficiency maintained? <laughs> the, the queen of cancer is no. We're not very good at multitasking um, in general. And, and yeah, you're right. It, it really isn't a self-help book. The title, I mean, I guess the title isn't how uh, you can get things done better, 
right? <laughs> it's just saying, here's, a, here's a, an account of how we get things done. But that being said, uh, yeah, multitasking is uh, uh, something that is prevalent in our world. There's no doubt about it. It's very hard to avoid. We're always, we're always surrounded by multiple, not just tasks we're doing, but potential tasks we could be doing. Um, and that causes, uh, and that'll cause costs because we, we have, a, for the most part, and, and there's an interesting question about the exceptions, right? We are, of course, able to chew gum and walk at the same time. But the, but the, for the most part, any two uh, demanding tasks can't be done at the same time without a cost to both performance and quality, like efficiency and quality. Um, and so, and in fact, it's the very people who, uh, the, the, the data suggests the very people who think that they can multitask tend to be the worst at multitasking in terms of those performance costs as it happens. But all of us are, for the most part, bad at, at multitasking. Uh, staying with the theme of uh, improving productivity, uh, as a neuroscientist, do you think uh, that a better understanding of uh, working of various processes in our brain uh, can help us function in a manner that the resources in our brain are uh, used more effectively. Uh, and can this lead uh, to improved uh, productivity? Yeah, it's it a good question. I mean, I think one thing we, it would be nice to understand better, I think, and would help would help our productivity is is how is it that we learn effectively and um, and when we're in, into new situations. It's one of the one of the hardest problems to understand because most learning that we do understand, and, and, I'll, and I'll say more what I mean by this, but but I'll start with what what this what's the common way we look at learning is the assumption that we have lots of opportunities to learn. Right, that we're you know when you most a lot of learning theory assumes that you've had multiple trials and, and you know and, and so we understand a bit more about that kind of learning multiple attempts to learn something multiple chances for feedback, but I think the thing that is I find most uh, impressive about about uh, a, a strong our, our cognitive control system and something that seems very important for being able to do uh, behave in a day to day way is that we can enter, is entering new situations, right that we haven't been in before exactly that situation and being able to do better in those situations. And that's the kind of thing that if you look at, at uh, uh, patients, for example, cognitive control is, gets disrupted in a wide range of disorders. So from, you know, from, you know, neuro neurological disorders ranging from stroke to Parkinson's disease and, and so forth to, um, to a wide range of psychiatric disorders as well, almost all show some problems with cognitive control. And, and as we age, even in healthy aging, with older adults, uh, the loss of independence in living, right, and the need for hospitalizations and so forth, often is because you're not able to carry out everyday tasks. You're not able to take care of yourself anymore. And it's not because you aren't doing the same task over and over, right? All of us know our morning routine at the back of our hands. It's that it's never quite the same. Every time you enter a new situation, you're having to do things uh, all at once. And we understand less about that. What happens in that first moment Right? When, you, when you have a new problem and you need to be able to, and you be able to behave, how do we do that? And I think as a function of the brain, um, understanding how uh, systems that we associate with cognitive control, we, we haven't gone into in, in much depth, but that relate to prefrontal cortex, but also how it, say, its dynamics with subcortical structures like the basal ganglia, um, as well as, as other parts of the brain, and, and the broader networks that it's a part of. One thing that we appreciate now that I think we didn't early on is the prefrontal cortex is part of a broader network of neocortical regions as well as subcortical areas, and, and its functions carry out through dynamics in those networks. Um, but, the, but how is it that those... Those systems interact with systems we have for memory, systems we have for other kinds of processing to do that kind of fast behavior. Because if we learn that better, I think that actually um, can have beneficial effects for a wide range of different groups, you know, patient groups, as I mentioned, groups um, you know, as well as the elderly. And presumably, it would also help all of us because we're, all, we, we're often faced with this problem of how do we manage this new situation, right? And I think there's, a, there's, a, there's maybe hope for application there as well. Does uh, the cognitive control system uh, change uh, as we age? Does it become more sharp? Uh, does it become rusty as uh, we age? Cognitive control changes throughout our lives. So, from the from you know over the course of as we as we as we uh, as we grow right, as children, um, it goes through a process of development. Right to the um, where it gets it gets better and stronger and stronger in terms of the situations you can you can manage um, until you until 
basically your, your uh, second and third decade of life. And then from about age 35 on, I'm sorry to say, there's about a, <laughs> there's a rough linear decline roughly in, in at least the, the measures we have of cognitive control. Um, that's about, it's about, it's pretty linear for most until, until really your seventies or eighties, at which point it can tend, it tends to have a, a further, further decline and control and control function is really one of those functions that gets heavily affected as we age and it gets um, harder and harder to, to engage in it. And as I, as I alluded to a few moments ago, that, that aging, uh, that process is one of the reasons why is, um, older adults um, have a harder time. They tend to be more inflexible in their ability to adapt to new situations, and they start to have a harder and harder time with, with independence in very old age. In the past 50 years, uh, a large number of new technologies have emerged. Uh, most of these technologies uh, assist us in doing uh, our day-to-day -day tasks, we have outsourced uh, a number of uh, brain activities to these uh, technologies. We don't have to remember as much as we had to in the past. As a result of uh, these new technologies, uh, as neuroscientists, uh, you and your colleagues, are you noticing any changes happening in our brain? I wouldn't say that I see a, a difference per se, but I do think it's the it's the case that we are our 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 the our cognition must be changing because right? I think as you're as you're pointing out we we have and I actually don't think that's necessarily a new phenomenon right the moment we we were able to use a piece of paper right to 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 kind of help our to aid our memory there's some extension of what we're doing into our into our environment we're often placing our cognition and situating it in, in the world around us but you are very right that that, that technologies have have exploded that process. And so it's an actually interesting question from the perspective of, of cognitive control, because how we, when you're using those devices, you're doing it based on, I mean, we do it very naturally, we don't think about it, but you're doing it based on an estimate of how that, how that device will help you, right? Like I, for instance, I, I'm very much, a, my wife likes to tell me the sort of a stereotype of an absent-minded professor, right? And so for me, reminders on things like phones and stuff is just, it's fantastic. It's, 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 it's been, it's, it's, it's basically probably why I, I managed to get tenure and everything else. Otherwise I would have forgotten everything years ago. Um, and so it's, uh, it, it, you know, having that, that ability is though to do that, think about, if you think about it, required both a, a, a metacognitive ability to assess my own, my own abilities, and then a way to plan based on this new tool, um, how to carry out that function that I might have carried out internally before. And that's something that is, um, is very much at the heart of cognitive control. And it's also, by the way, why it's the case that assistive, one of the challenges to assistive devices in aging, if you want to come back to what we were talking about a few moments ago, can be, can be rough because you have to get, because it requires some degree of flexibility in cognitive control to start incorporating those kinds of technologies into your everyday life. Right. And so if you wanted to have, you know, assistance robots, there's a, there's a, some of my colleagues at Brown are very interested in, in, uh, uh, in computer science, they're very interested in, in robot assistance. And, um, and one of the things you have to think you have to work on is, okay, when, do, how does a robot know when to help or an assistance robot? Or can the user decide when that robot should be able to help? That's a really hard problem, right? Because on the one hand, you even think just among two people who are in a human-human uh, teaming situation, right? You have to have a kind of a conception of that other person's abilities, right? Where they're going based on what they're doing and deciding when it's time to intervene. Um, and without that person being able to tell you that, it becomes extremely difficult to do that from the from the outside, and so to some degree, um, it's. I wouldn't say that the brain is changing per se, but I do think that uh, it's we're we we are expanding our capabilities all the time. If you think about the fact that our cognition is not restricted to our head per se, but it's about this interaction between our world and our head. But a lot of that is very much dependent on very much these principles of cognitive control that we've been talking about. Uh, this book is uh, full of fascinating case studies uh, and details of research conducted by various uh, scientists. Uh, David, how research uh, is conducted in the field of neuroscience? Uh, do you design experiments, collect data, do hypothesis testing? Do you analyze images, x-rays, CT scans and MRI scans? Or do you cut a skull up and look inside at various parts of the brain? Or is the research in neuroscience mix of uh, these various techniques? 
Well, so this is a great question. And probably you ask a different neuroscientist, you'll get different kinds of answers. I, I think the best type of neuroscience is the type at the end, what you described, that uses lots of different approaches. Because every approach, so my own research is in human neuroscience. So that means I'm doing cognitive neuroscience. So that means I'm relying, I, I'm, I'm ethically prohibited from doing a, a variety of things, as rightly I should be, right, that you might be able to do in other, other, other um, species or something that, that uh, outside of a human, Right, but I can do, um, I can do things like neuroimaging. I can do uh, uh, electroencephalography. I can do. Um, we do. I, we also study patients in my lab, and there are cases that um, we have of uh, patients who have, for instance, um, neurological problems like intractable epilepsy that um, would prevent or that, that require neurosurgery and require recording electrodes to be placed in the brain for a monitoring period. And if they consent, we can, um, we can sometimes get direct neural recording data even from the human brain, though it's, it's, um, those, are, those are rare and valuable data sets. So, but that being said, we, all, we do have, there is work being done in, uh, by other labs that aren't mine. There is work being done at, at all levels of analysis. The people who work in preparations, Right within a petri dish of, of neurons, or people who do who work to work in animal, uh, in it with animal models, and all of that um, answers different questions. That you know, and and there are different limit. There are limitations to all of these different approaches, and and when it comes to neuroscience, um, it's very hard to take any one approach and be able to make any kind of any kind of progress. And also, from my perspective, I think we actually we have a big emphasis also on computation and computational methods for doing theory, right? Because that allows us to integrate these different approaches within, a, within strong theoretical frameworks that, that allow us to, in principled ways, integrate across different kinds of, of data that we get, different types of approaches, uh, and so forth. Um, and in fact, you know, a lot of it, though, I mean, coming back to a, something we talked about earlier, we, we also are very close to the computer science as well, because a lot of the principles that people... Um, are doing to, to, to study computing, we can um, help us understand some of the, the types of, of problems that we're looking at, even in neuroscience. You and your colleagues have made excellent contributions uh, to the neuroscience of cognitive control and executive function. In your lab, what are the most pressing research questions uh, that you and your colleagues are, are working on uh, these days? Well, I mean, there's probably two major lines for us right now um, that are that we're focused on. So one actually is related to the working memory gating that we discussed earlier. So we, you know, we have we've studied for a while now uh, that the loops between the prefrontal cortex itself, which you can think of as maybe serving the memory side of the maintenance side of, of our working memory, that that loops with a structure called the basal ganglia um, and forms a feedback loop, like a servo almost. We know that for motor function, this is very well characterized um, as, as sort of helping to be able to build motor plans without executing them and then gate them out. So when it's time, you can make a movement. And we've been working, and, and the, the hypothesis that I talk about in detail in the book and that we, you know, we've, been, we've been studying for a number of years now is that that same mechanism, that same circuit is quite canonical in the brain. You actually see it also regulating areas of the prefrontal cortex that support higher order goals and, 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 um, and so forth that you need for cognitive control. And so, the, uh, and so a, a lot of our work right now is trying to understand more about that circuit, its anatomy, its function. Um, we're even looking at some um, pharmacology manipulations that allow us to, to, with neurotransmitters, manipulate different parts of that circuit as best we can in the human brain um, and, and try to understand at the mechanistic level working memory gating, because we think that's at the, at one of the real core aspects of how we, we are able to bridge this gap between knowledge and action. The other, the other major line for us is um, uh, we're interested, we've just started, but I'm quite excited about it, is that uh, we've, there's been, for a long time, we've known, as you said earlier, that prefrontal cortex is important for control. We think of it as where we maintain information about our tasks, our goals and our context. But there hasn't been a lot of understanding of how that how the prefrontal cortex organizes that information. In other words, how is it that when, I, when different inputs come in, do the patterns of neural activity relate to one another? Like how similar do they, do they encode them? How distinctly? How do they separate out similar things? Or do they take similar things and lump them together, for example? And that kind of, th those, that property 
of the neural representation turns out to be really important for the function. And it's been recent advances in uh, theoretical neuroscience have offered us some tools that we may be able to apply using the kinds of methods we have like fMRI and EEG in order to start estimating things about this, the organization of these representations um, and how they relate to behavior. And we have some exciting sort of preliminary results that we started seeing in this domain. And I think this is actually a new, very new frontier, I think, in the way of thinking about control um, as being, and, and how the, that the brain sort of takes advantage of this, this organizational property in order to constrain how we um, are able to uh, represent different kinds of task-related information. So that's, that's a new direction that we're quite excited about. David, uh, we are discussing your book uh, on task, how our brain gets things done. Uh, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Uh, is there anything else that you uh, suggest uh, we should discuss before we close this discussion? Anything interesting and important um, that we should discuss in this conversation that I might have uh, overlooked. I know. I think this was this was a great discussion. I mean, the book covers a lot of topics that we didn't touch on, of course, that are related to control. I mean, things like inhibitory control that people often, I think, maybe most colloquially associate with self-control, like our ability to withhold a response or stop ourselves from eating a piece of cake and things like that. Um, there are, you know, there are, are other topics like that that. Um, you know, are, are in the book, but hopefully, hopefully, this discussion is enough to make people curious enough that they want to learn more about this this topic. Because I think it's a it's a it's an unfamiliar topic in 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 uh, in psychology and cognition and neuroscience. You hear a lot about other kinds of things, um, but cognitive control hasn't gotten as much attention. But I but I hopefully this will be this will pique people's interest. I am uh, tempted to ask one more question. Uh, in the book, you discuss the mechanism of uh, working memory gates. My question is, does this mechanism relate to our ability to maintain focus by keeping unnecessary information out of the working memory? I think so, because it comes back to that theme we discussed earlier of stability versus flexibility. Memory gates are a way to, for the brain to solve that, right? So as I mentioned, this is a fundamental trade-off. If, if you think about example I often give is, you know, if I'm, if I'm on the one hand, you want to make, you mentioned maintaining focus, right? So I want to be able to be in focused enough that if I'm sitting at my computer working on, on a document, right, a paper or something or a grant, um, and I don't want, for instance, the distraction of my phone buzzing or say an email badge popping up to keep me from, from staying focused. So I want to be stable on the one hand. So that's a maintenance function. I want to hold that in my working memory and I want to keep this other information from entering working memory and driving me towards these other tasks. On the other hand, however, I don't want to be so stable, right? So stable that if something important comes up, if one of my graduate students comes rolling in and tells me the lab's on fire, that I'm, I just sit there and doggedly work on my, on my manuscript. Rather, I need to be able at that point to update my, my working memory with a new goal, put the fire out in my lab or whatever. And so this, um, that's this trade-off. And the way that the brain solves this is with this division of labor where the stability side of that, the maintenance side of that is supported by, by um, these sort of recurrent networks in prefrontal cortex, right out in the cortex. But they're being updated and gated by these basal ganglia mechanisms that are separate from them. And so each one can compute the value in stability versus, versus flexibility. And then you can, end up, you can balance those two through this working memory gating process. Professor David Bader, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. I enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.